Good morning. This morning, I'd like to share a prayer with you by author Rebecca Lyons. Please join me in prayer. Meet me, O Christ, in the stillness of morning. Move me, O Spirit, to quiet my heart. Mid me, O Father, from yesterday's harms. From the discords of yesterday, resurrect my peace. From the discouragement of yesterday, resurrect my hope. From the weariness of yesterday, resurrect my strength. From the doubts of yesterday, resurrect my faith. From the wounds of yesterday, resurrect my love. Let me enter this new day aware of my need and awake to your grace, O Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 34. This morning, we will read responsibly. I'll read the parts in the normal text and invite you to read aloud the parts in bold. Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for leading us, Rachel. We're going to spend uh, the next couple weeks considering Psalm 34 uh, simply because it's a beautiful psalm. And even as we were reading it this morning, you know, sometimes it really helps us to slow down and to read bigger chunks of Scripture, even though it can feel long. I don't know if you felt this way, but I mean, I've been reading over this psalm over and over and over again this week, getting ready to preach, and 
I'm seeing new stuff even this morning as we hear the words of scripture. Um, so I don't know, maybe we'll turn this into a two-month series or something and, and just marinate in Psalm 42. Probably not. Uh, it's, a, it's not one of the most well-known psalms. It's not like Psalm 23 that we've all memorized, but there are probably verses in here that you have heard before. The opening is really well-known. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. We've heard those verses and verses like it. Verse 8 is probably the most well-known. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And when we read words like that, we, we think, you know, those are kind of big words, big words of praise. And like I mentioned earlier this morning, we're thinking about worship this morning. But in fact, King David wrote this psalm at one of the low points of his life. When we realize that he wrote it at one of the low points in his life, then there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Like, how can he be at such a low point and write such lofty words? And that's really what we're going to start looking at this morning. Because no matter where you are in life, you have probably been in a tight spot before or at a low point in life before. I don't know how it looks for you. But maybe there's a moment where it just looked like there was no way out of the present situation. There was no hope in the middle of the brokenness or to the despair. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe it was another person giving you a hard time. Maybe it wasn't a person, but maybe you just felt, felt like you were in some sort of a really challenging or impossible situation. Maybe it was a loss. Maybe you experienced a loss that you felt like you would never come out of. It could be the loss of a, of a person, of a loved one. It could be the loss of a relationship. It could be a divorce. Whether you or someone you know, maybe it was, maybe it was a loss of a job. No matter what the loss is, maybe it was a loss of health. Whatever the loss is, sometimes it, it feels like there's this gaping wound and we will never come out of it. When there's no way out and God seems awfully distant, how do we respond? This is really the question that King David is answering in this psalm, even though it doesn't look like it at first. We see hints later on. Did you notice towards the end? He says, A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And he, God, protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And right before that, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. We get hints of God's mercy and compassion later on, but we also get it earlier on. Let me share with you a little bit of why King David wrote this psalm. We didn't, I didn't print this in the program, but actually part of the original Hebrew text is a little preface, a little introduction to the psalm. It says, Psalm 34 of David, when he, in, when he pretended to be insane as he was fleeing the king Abimelech of Gath. You think, what is that all about? I'm not going to get too lost in the weeds, but it's actually helpful to understand why did King David write this psalm? If you know the story, if not, I'll refresh you. Israel, uh, King David was Israel's second king, and when he wrote this, he probably wasn't actually king yet. He was next in line. Israel's first king, a man named Saul, turned out to be a real dud. And so God kind of changes his mind. He says, we need somebody else. And so he appoints David as the second king. The trouble for David is he appoints David as the second king while Saul is still alive. And you can imagine that King Saul starts to feel threatened and he gets pretty jealous. And so he tries to kill David. Now David escapes from King Saul and he escapes to a city-state called Gath. 
And he thinks he can hide out there and be safe, except word gets out who he is. And so then the king of Gath tries to kill David. And the only way that David knows to get out is to literally pretend to be insane. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He lets, he lets saliva drip down his beard and he, he just starts yelling a bunch of nonsense. And finally, the king of Gath says, fine, just get out. In other words, King David is running from his life, from King Saul. He comes to a place where he thinks he's going to find refuge and safety and he realizes his life is threatened there too. And none of it is his fault. This all just happens to him and he's an innocent victim of circumstances. What do you do? King David teaches us we will ourselves, even in our lowest moments, we will ourselves to worship. He teaches us that worship is an act of the will, not just of the emotion. Worship is an act of the will as much as, and I dare say more than, our emotions. You know, it's really easy to worship God when things are going well. It's really easy to feel worshipful when it's sunny and 75 outside and when it's summertime and the days are long and when things are going really well and your friends have been good to you and you've seen your friends lately and you've had meaningful interactions with them. It's easy to worship God when your kids are bringing home A's. It's easy to worship God when you're getting promoted or you're getting a raise, when everything is looking up. But when things are a lot harder in life, we can find it's a lot harder to worship God. It doesn't come naturally. And that's where we sing and we learn from King David to sing, I will, I will extol the Lord. This is verse one. At all times, when things are good and when they're bad. And remember, he's writing when things are bad. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. When I'm afflicted, I don't feel like rejoicing. And yet King David says, when you're afflicted, you can rejoice. Glorify the Lord together with me. Let us exalt his name together. Do you hear the insistence in King David's tone and in his voice? That when my soul is sunny and 75, I will worship. And when my soul is overcast and 28 and somehow it's below freezing but still raining, that's the worst kind of rain, I will rejoice. And in those moments when your soul is dark and overcast and damp, those are the moments, arguably, when it's most important, David teaches us, to worship God to will yourself to worship, if that's what it takes. So this morning, we're going to look at two simple questions about worship. One, what does that kind of worship look like? And two, where do we find the strength to worship when life is, frankly, not all that good? To will ourselves to worship. If we're talking about worship, we should probably understand a little bit more about the word worship. The English word worship is related. It comes from the same root as the words worth and worthy. Now, we're going to think about worship a little more next week as well. And next week, we're really going to dig into this phrase that David uses twice in the psalm, the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? But we're going to see, especially next week, I'll give you the teaser, that to worship God is just anything we do or say or even think that demonstrates that God is worth us following him. 
that he is worthy of our commitment, of our obedience. He's worthy of our worship, worthy of our love, no matter what. In a sense, it's when we say, along with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You can see if worship means following and obeying and praising God no matter what, then in a sense, worship becomes so much more potent and powerful when things aren't necessarily looking positive. And worshiping when the outlook is bleak can look a lot of different ways. There's not really a prescription about how to worship, but it's anything that demonstrates that God is worthy. Here are a few examples of what it could look like. It could look like something as simple as just coming to church on Sunday when you don't feel like it. And saying, not because, of, not because I have to or not because God is going to judge me or not because he's going to get angry at me, but because somehow in my heart I just have this conviction that I, God is somehow worthy of my worship. It could mean you wake up, you know how some mornings you just wake up in a, in a bad mood and you have a bad attitude and you don't, like you just slept. And for some reason you're just, you're just in this funk. Worship could mean recognizing you're in that funk and singing your favorite worship song or your favorite hymn as you're making breakfast. It could mean reciting a psalm that's meaningful to you that you've memorized over the years. It could mean just stopping and praying real quick. doesn't have to be out loud in your heart. Something like, Lord, I'm down right now, but I trust that you're still good. You're worthy of my worship, and I don't even know what exactly that means, but as best as I can, I want to worship you. Teach me. Worship can mean, and well, this is what we'll really see next week, worship can mean you've had it up to here with someone. And in that moment, when you've had it up to here, you insist on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Do you see? It's just anything we do or say or think that demonstrates to God or to ourselves, sometimes it's about almost convincing ourselves or to, to people around you, that really what it comes down to is you are not the king or queen of your life, that God is the king of your life, and that you will follow him and worship him no matter what. I know a family, um, I've kind of lost touch, but we used to be closer with them. About 20 years ago, um, they were pregnant with their first child, and their first child was stillborn. And as you can imagine, they were devastated. And they told me this story that less than an hour after the delivery, less than an hour after the delivery, so all the commotion in the delivery room had finally, you know, settled down and all the doctors and nurses had left. And the couple was alone and the room was just, you know, thick with silence and with grief and with loneliness. And the wife, Julia, said to her husband, they're Christians, and she said, Matt, I have to worship God right now. If I don't worship God right now, I'm not sure I ever will again. You see, she understood in that moment the importance that even in the heaviest sorrow, in fact, we might say especially, especially in the heaviest sorrow, how important it is to worship. And so they told me they went to the cheesy little hospital chapel and they prayed 
and they sang a song. And that was kind of it. Like it wasn't long. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a production. It was just the two of them. It was, I imagine it was probably actually pretty awkward. And you know, it didn't fix, it didn't fix everything. It, it didn't really fix much of anything, in fact. Like their, their child was still dead and their grief was still suffocating. And the ground under them still felt just as unstable as it felt before. But they had to worship. And their worship wasn't about getting something from God as if they could bribe God to get what they wanted. It was, it was an act of worship just because God is good even when life isn't. Because he is worthy. You see, this is the foundation of worship. The foundation of worship. How do we find the strength to worship when life is unbearable? The foundation of worship is simple. That God is good. Even when life isn't. God is good even when life isn't. This is what we build our worship upon. Verse 8, the famous verse. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Remember David's, David's life situation as he's, life is not good for David right now. And yet he writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. Full stop. He doesn't say life is, God is good when life is good. No, God is good all the time. Therefore, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Our perspective is often limited, but that doesn't mean that God isn't good. And just because we don't understand what God is doing doesn't mean that God isn't good. There's an old saying that I love, that in in every event, in every situation in life, God is doing like 10,000 different things. And you and I are aware of, at best, three of them. But what else is God doing that we don't even see and recognize? So earlier this week, I was at the playground with her. We were at the playground with the family, and Elliot, our oldest daughter, was on the monkey bars. And she's just getting pretty good at monkey bars and pretty confident, and she's going her across these, and then she gets stuck halfway. She cries out to me. I'm sitting on the bench. Daddy, help me. And I said, no. Parenting 101. And she's probably thinking in this moment, daddy's so mean, daddy's so cruel, daddy doesn't love me, why won't daddy help me, right? Of course, no. And, and I encouraged her, I, I didn't just say no and like walk off. I encouraged her to keep going, keep trying. You can do this. You, you're halfway across, right? Keep your eyes on the next, swing your body, do all these things that have worked. And you know what happened? She fell off. <laughs> she fell, she didn't even make it. But then she went around and she climbed back up and then, and then she started again. I said, you can do it, try it again, try it again. And she needed some persuasion, but she did. And then the second time, she, she made it all the way across. And now, all of a sudden, she has this confidence of, Daddy, I did it. That's great. I'm so proud of you, right? And now, she has the confidence and the strength and the ability that, like, now she can. Why, why did I refuse to help my daughter in that moment? Because, paradoxically, by not helping her in that moment, I was helping her more. You see? She didn't necessarily understand that in the moment. She thought I was, just, I was just being a bad dad. Daddy's mean. Why won't daddy help me? But by not helping her in that moment, 
by her not, by her, I should say, by her feeling like I wasn't helping her in that moment, she didn't realize I was helping her more. It didn't look to her, it didn't feel to her at the time like I was helping, but in fact, I was. Now, it's a silly little illustration. And the, the point of it, let's be clear here, the point of it is not to give you some secret insight into what God is doing. I, I don't know what God is doing. We usually don't know, okay? And you could, like, you could take this illustration way out of context and say, well, Pastor Chris just said that God helps those who help themselves. And I, I didn't say that, and I'm not saying that, okay? That phrase is, no, first, it's nowhere in the Bible. People think it's in the Bible, and it's not. It's a vile perversion of the gospel. It really has no place in the Christian journey. The point of that is not to draw attention on me. In fact, it's to help us to identify with how is, how is six-year-old Elliot feeling? That in that moment, she doesn't necessarily understand why, but there is something greater going on. We don't always understand why, but, but God is always good. No matter what. Even when we don't feel it, God is always good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Let me share with you one more story. This is a, a longer and, and a more meaningful story, a more personal example of this. Most of you know that my wife, Jamie, has a genetic disease called cystic fibrosis. And we're really grateful to live near Boston. And for the past 10 years, she's gotten incredible medical care uh, through her doctors and care team in Boston. And as it turns out, and she's given me permission to share this, uh, it, it turns out there are several major pharmaceutical and biotech firms that are also based in Boston. So because they're in Boston and doctors have been in Boston and they all know each other, then it means that Jamie has had pretty good odds of getting into certain drug trials certain trials for new drugs that they're developing. So this is, this is a long time, 2014 or 2015, somewhere in there, Jamie qualified for a new drug trial. And we were really, really excited. And there's, there's really no way to convey the excitement. And I can't explain it, and you, you won't, like, get it. But let me just tell you, like, when you have this life-altering, life-limiting illness, a drug trial that represents the hope of a longer future is, it's, it's not just like we're, we're kind of excited, like we're putting a lot of stock in this. And when you start a drug trial, because they don't, it's a new drug and they don't know how it works and there are all these limitations and restrictions and qualifications you have to use. They do all these tests beforehand. There are a lot of rules. So like in this particular trial and probably in a lot of trials, you absolutely could not get pregnant right, because it's a brand new drug and they don't know how it's going to interact with a baby in the mother's womb. And so I, I don't remember, but they, they either insisted on her being on two or three different kinds of birth control, just to be absolutely sure. So Jamie was ex accepted into this trial and we were really excited because this, this could really represent a major step forward in her care. And as they ran all the normal, you know, just kind of dot the I's, cross the T's, these qualifying tests, um, one of the tests came back that showed a result that was brand new. And that result that we had no idea about, a different genetic mutation than we realized, disqualified her from that trial. And it was a result that, it, it was due to basically a, an error by a geneticist that some geneticist had made probably about 30, 35 years ago. So all of a sudden, 
We were, so, we were absolutely on the mountaintop. We were so high and excited that she's gotten into this, and now we're devastated that she no longer qualifies. And it's not even her fault. She didn't do anything. And it was so much worse to qualify and then be disqualified than it would have to just not qualify in the first place. And we're really struggling. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And I'll tell you right then, it didn't feel like God was good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We weren't feeling blessed. We really were not. Look a couple verses later, verse 10. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We just had this good thing and now we're lacking it. Where are you, God? We've just been robbed of a, of a very good thing. Where are you, Lord? This is, this is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2014, maybe 2015. Jamie gets disqualified. In 2016, our first daughter, Elliot, is born. In 2018, Jamie qualified for a second drug trial. She actually ended up getting the very last spot in the country after somebody else backed out. And in that trial, there was a 50-50 chance of her getting the drug that they're testing or a placebo. And a week after starting the trial, her health had shot through the roof. She, I'll never forget. She said, I've never been able until today to walk up a flight of stairs without getting winded. So clearly, she, she was in the trial. She got the drug. It's been such a successful drug for her and for all the other patients in the trial that the company brought it to market a few years ago. And it's been, I'm not exaggerating, the biggest improvement in cystic fibrosis care in history for thousands and thousands of patients. It's not an overstatement to say this has been a miracle. Now we're feeling blessed. But I'll tell you, when Jamie was disqualified from the first drug trial, we were not. And yet, had she gotten into the first trial, we would not have had Elliot because she would not permit it to get pregnant. And the first trial, as it turns out, didn't even work. Like, the drug did nothing. They scrapped it pretty quickly. And had she been a part of the first trial, she would have been disqualified from getting into the second trial. And that drug has now, I'm not exaggerating, added decades to her life expectancy. When she was disqualified from that first drug trial in 2014 or 2015, we were not feeling blessed. But now we look through the rearview mirror and we realize what a blessing that was. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Now, in the big picture, I know, like, this was a relatively quick process, real big picture, three or four years. And I know that there, there are challenges in life that don't resolve so neatly, and they don't resolve in three or four years. In fact, some of you have been waiting and hoping for whatever that blessing is that you're longing for for decades, and you're still not feeling it. And let me, let me be a real downer. <laughs> like, you, you might never realize the blessing that you're hoping for. What if that never comes true for you? Is God still good? 
it's really tempting to think, well, because I haven't gotten this blessing and I'm pretty sure I know how, you know, I haven't, God hasn't answered in the way that I want him to, then God can't be good. God must not be good. That's a dangerous thing to think. Let me share with you two dangers, both of which lead to one deadly result of an attitude that says, if God hasn't blessed me in the way that I think I should, he should, he must not be good. The first danger is this, that if you judge that because your circumstances aren't good, then God must not be good, then you're revealing that you don't really want God, you just want what he can give you. You want his blessings, but not him. You want the gift, but not the giver. And if the blessings aren't there, then you don't want them. The second danger is this. If you judge that because your circumstances aren't good, then God must not be good, then who is really the judge here? You're setting up a relationship between you and God where you get to judge good versus evil. Remember from Genesis 3? Then they will, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. You get to judge good versus evil, and then God has to submit to your judgment. The result of both of those dangers is this, that you have effectively told God, you're not actually God, I am. You have made yourself God. If God is just there to serve you, you're God, and he's your servant. If you get to judge whether God is good or not, then you're God and he's your subordinate. Do you see? The Lord is good always, even when life isn't. Now you might be thinking and asking, Chris, you just read verse 10. What about that? Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Doesn't it say that? Yes, it does. And I would ask you, in that verse, first, what are you seeking? Are you seeking the Lord? Or are you just seeking his blessing? Are you seeking the Lord for his own sake, or are you seeking the Lord so that you can get something from him? Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Well, Chris, it says we lack no good thing. Yes, it does. But remember, who is also the judge of what is good and what is not? Jamie and I judged that her rejection from the first drug trial was not a good thing. In fact, it was the best thing that could have happened. We were wrong in that moment. And what would have happened, I wonder, if God had submitted to our judgment and gotten her into that first trial? We don't seek God just to get something from him. We seek God to get God. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the very best thing, let me tell you, the very best thing, the most good thing that God can give us is himself, which he has. He gave himself by becoming human. He gave himself by giving his life on the cross. He gave himself in, on the thir- in that on the third day he rose again. If you stop, remember, we don't stop at the cross. 
The story doesn't stop at the cross. It continues on from Friday to Sunday. If you stop at the cross, all you have is some lunatic who claimed to be God and got killed for it. But if you continue, and when you continue from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, when you continue from the cross and the grave to the resurrection and the empty tomb, you realize that he who was crushed by death and crushed by death once became the one who crushed death once and for all, who turned death into new life, and who turns death into new life. That's the goodness of God. We don't always see it because we don't have the perspective of the whole story, but God is always turning death into new life. That's how King David can say, taste and see that the Lord is good even when he's faced with death. And that's why he invites us and calls us to sing with him, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Last week, the last week of our vacation, we were worshiping at my favorite church in Portsmouth that isn't Middle Street. It's called Redemption Hill Church. They're about a block, they're a block that way. They're so close. They're awesome. And when we're on, if we're, when we're on vacation, if we're in town, we go there and we love worshiping with them. And they sang this song that I hadn't heard before, but there was this one lyric and I don't know if it was the chorus or the bridge of the song, one line, and it said, you turn graves into gardens. What a good image, huh? You turn graves into gardens. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, just as Jesus' grave, the place of his place of death became a place of life, he raises us from the dead too. And the outlook may look bleak, I know. That might be because we're in Friday or Saturday right now. But as the famous preacher S.M. Lockridge loved to say, it might be Friday, but Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. At all times, when life is good and when life is not good, we will ourselves to worship because he is good and he is the one who turns graves into gardens. Amen.